All right, guys. Hey, hello, everybody. Welcome. <laughs> uh, we're about to start um, soon. Before we start, I'm just going to ask Stephen to come up and pray for us. Stephen. So that's all you're All right, guys, let's begin. Father, Lord, thank you for gathering us here once again. And today, Lord, as we are going to learn about the topic of God and money, we pray that you would lead our hearts and our minds. And uh, as we talk about money, it's always the values that we are uh, considering. And so, Lord, direct our hearts and minds to you. And Lord, in the beginning, uh, do look into our hearts, Lord, and see what is wrong in it. And through today's session, we pray that you would correct it and uh, make it for your glory. We pray for Pastor Andrew June as he uh, ministers to us today. Bless him and use him uh, mightily, O Lord, and use the words that he's going to speak as though it is your own. And use this to me. Amen. All right, guys. Uh, welcome to the, this uh, month's gathering. And where is Chipta? <laughs> right. Okay. You're behind me. So he's going to do whatever announcements. <laughs> Okay, guys. So, no, I'm actually going to do an announcement at the end. Um, but first, I would like to introduce Pastor Andrew. So, uh, let me let me give you a short biography here of Pastor Andrew. I'm, I'm going to read this, and I'm going to tell you, um, I'm going to introduce him, okay? So, this is Pastor Andrew June, all right? He went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, right? All right. Um, he's the lead pastor of Harvest Mission Community Church of Jakarta, and he moved to Jakarta in 2010. Um, and, it's, and the second plan, the second church plan is in Gogol, correct? Yeah, but the, my, my first, let, let me tell you my first impression of Pastor Andrew Jun. Um, I met him a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remembered, but I was there with Surya. And this, this is the first memory I had of him. Um, we were in HMCC. Um, I think this was two years ago. And, and Surya was this, this man that is very motivated of having a good church plant here in Jakarta. So he told Pastor Andrew, he said, Pastor Andrew, you have to make a church plant in Jakarta, not in Karawachi, right? You have to move here, and we, we, need, a, we need a church plant here, a, a good gospel-centered reformed church here. And Pastor Andrew, this is his reply. Okay, Surya, um, you know, that's a good idea, but first, I have to ask my family, because I, you need to understand that, I, I need to understand that I'm not going to be the main changer of Jakarta. Um, if this is God's calling for me in Karawachi, I don't have to move to Jakarta because although I want to be, um, you know, the changer of this whole city, but I just have to understand my calling. That was my first impression of you, Pastor Andrew. So you're this humble man who's just faithful to your calling and just put your family first. So that's amazing. Okay. So without further ado, Pastor Andrew, please come up to the stage. All right. All right. Thank you. I remember that lunch with Surya. And uh, <laughs> I was like, "Wow, these guys are very these guys are very motivated, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they're very excited about you know building the church in Jakarta." So I said, "Even though I don't feel God calling me to to do this, uh, I want to hang out with you guys more." So uh, I am thankful for the opportunity to come to the gathering, and I've gotten to know some of the some of the guys in the gathering. Some of you have been a part of our church or have visited in the past, and so. It's good to see you here as well, as well as just to have an opportunity to serve, uh, to serve you this afternoon. And so uh, I'm excited to talk about God and money, uh, not because I love talking about money, but because I like talking about the Bible, and I like talking about how we as God's people can actually live out uh, 
his will as disciples of Christ, and especially in the area of money, which is a very important part of life. And so uh, let me just pray, and then uh, I'll get started on, uh, on what I'm going to talk about. Okay, let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this afternoon thankful for the opportunity and the privilege to serve your word to people and to serve your people uh, serve your people uh, in this city that represent different churches and different families and um, we pray that God your spirit would speak to us through your word and it would lead us to obedience it would lead us to obedient uh, stewardship of our financial resources, to generosity, to faithfulness uh, in our families, in our local churches, and uh, to the kingdom of God. We want to love you more through this time. May we be people who love you more, and may it be shown through the way that we steward uh, our financial resources. So we just ask for your help, ask for clarity, ask for your word to convict people, and that you be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm actually going to use a primary text to uh, teach out of. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. So I'm going to use this as kind of a... I'm going to basically give an exposition of this, uh, primarily with the focus of money and our financial stewardship. So uh, in, uh, in Dr. Craig Bloomberg's book, Neither poverty or riches. This is what he said uh, about stewardship. He said that stewardship of material possessions is the most important test case of one's profession of discipleship. He also said that materialism is one of the is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in our world today. And so, just thinking about the, uh, the, the, the topic of money, it's really important for us not to just hear from God's Word, but actually submit ourselves to God's Word when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to our view and our handling of money. So we're going to actually go and start today's teaching by asking some questions. How does your handling of your finances reflect your profession as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or does it show that you actually follow someone or something else? Does how you handle your finances reflect a proper, uh, a proper following as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or does it show that you actually follow something or somebody else? Another question I want to ask is, do material possessions and money compete for your devotion to Jesus Christ? Or does do you use your material possessions and your money to grow your devotion and to express your devotion to Jesus Christ? If that doesn't make any sense to you, then I'll explain what I mean as I go along, as I go along through uh, my exposition of Matthew 6, 19-24. I'm going to actually go through three overarching principles from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19-24. First, from verses 19 through 21, I'm going to talk about where, you're in, where you invest is where your heart is. Where you invest is where your heart is. Second, I'm going to talk about the principle of 
Your, your perspective about money feeds your heart and feeds how you actually live your life. Third principle in verse 24 is simply, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two masters. So I'm going to just read 19 through 21 and talk about principle one. Where you, where you invest is where your heart is. Let me read it for us. I think it'll be up here too. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is saying here that there's actually stuff that the world considers as valuable, okay? In fact, what I would say is that money and materialism is, a, is an extremely powerful idol in our society today. I just uh, looked on Wikipedia, uh, and I looked at shopping malls in Jakarta. I don't know if you've ever done that before, but I just Googled that. And actually, there's a link that shows, that lists all the malls that are in the city proper of Jakarta. There's 61 malls in the city of Jakarta. There's actually more in Singapore, so I think that's something that we're, we're glad that they have more of in Singapore. But there are 61 malls in the city of Jakarta. One blogger, uh, one blogger in Jakarta wrote this. He said, going to malls is a ritual for Jakartans. Going to the mall, uh, I went to the mall this past Monday uh, on our holiday. I said, you know, we don't actually as a family get to go into Jakarta a lot. So we said, for this holiday, uh, for Monday, we're going to go and get some, get some, I think, ramen or something like that. So our family went in and that's what people do here, right? When there's a holiday, when there's some time free, when you want to go out to eat, when you want to spend time with your family, when you have a little bit extra time to hang out with people, you go to the mall. In fact, I was just at the mall with Brom, and he just fed me a lot before here, uh, coming here. And that's what people do here. Uh, going to malls is not a sin, but what it does expose in our society here is it exposes this idea of materialism, how appealing materialism. In fact, we are pulled... Like gravity, we are pulled more and more to things like fashion, to gadgets, to luxury items, to fine dining. And this really reflects a distortion uh, of values that depraved people like you and I have embraced. And we're actually slaves to material possessions and to money. And we see that uh, in, in our society here, how much people are obsessed with appearances, with possessions, and with immediate gratification. And I'm not just saying that about people out there. I'm talking about, even for myself, that is a strong pull within me, and I would guess as you, uh, in you as well. What Jesus says, actually, is that accumulating all this stuff is actually a really bad investment. He's giving investment advice to people uh, on the sermon on, in the Sermon on the Mount here. He's saying... If you invest in all this stuff, it's really a bad investment. Let me explain. Uh, what's better? What's better if I told you I would give you a million rupiah right now, one, one million rupiah right now, okay? Or you wait one year and I will give you one billion rupiah. Let's say like you're really hungry at this moment. And you really want to do something like you want to go bowling today, but you have no money. You're like, okay, Pastor Andrew, that's really tempting. I'm going to take the one million rupiah. I will tell you, that is a really unwise investment. You know why? Because I just promised you, if you wait one year, if you forego eating 
whatever nice meal you want to eat, you, want to, you forego going, going bowling for the day, and you forego spending that one million rupiah today, you will get one million rupiah in a year from now. And this is the same kind of promise that God is giving His people. It's you can, you can take what you have right now in your life, or you can wait until your life on earth is over and enjoy an investment in so much more. Jesus actually pointed out that all the stuff that people pursue is perishable. It will rot, it will rust, it can be consumed, it can be lost, it can be taken away. And we know, I mean all of us know, that when we die, we can't take our stuff with us, right? We can't take all the stuff that we own, we can't take all the stuff that we possess. In fact, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I've experienced this in my life. The frustration of trying to keep up with stuff like technology. Because as soon as you get the new iPhone, what happens in a year and a half or two years? Another one comes out. And you think, oh, the, my phone is terrible. When you were perfectly satisfied with that phone two years ago. And then another two years ago, you're constantly trying to keep up with technology and advances. And it literally makes us like slaves. In a very practical sense then, investing so much of our self-worth into these things is a bad investment. There is, however, stuff that God does consider valuable. So, Jesus says is that life is about so much more than money. In fact, in the context of chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, it's what we all know as the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is giving a teaching about what it's like to be a citizen of God's kingdom. So he says, these are things that are important. Being salt and light in the world. Being an influence in the world. Reconciling with others. Chapter 5, 13 through 16, being salt and light. Uh, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, reconciling with others. Do you know that's valuable in God's kingdom? Do you know it's valuable in God's kingdom to be pure in heart? To be faithful to your spouse? to be committed for life with your spouse, with your husband or wife. If you look in verses 38 through 42, or 48 of chapter 5, that's what Jesus says. You know what else is important in God's kingdom? Living with integrity. Not retaliating, but loving one's enemies. Giving to the needy. Praying. Fasting. If we really want to make investments in good, wise things, these are the things that we ought to be investing ourselves in. That's citizenship in God's kingdom. These reflect the values of God's kingdom that are eternally and infinitely better an investment. So there are specific ways that I believe God wants us to use our money that are good investments according to God. I think first, He's entrusted us with money to take care of our needs to take care of our needs and the needs of people around us. This is why we work hard for ourselves and for our loved ones. And we're not like freeloading. And we're not asking other people for money when we should be working to provide for ourselves and for our families. Example of this is when Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, this, this was his normal way of living and discipling people. He worked hard. Look what it says. It says, uh, it says this, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you 
while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. In fact, you would say that Paul used his work as a context to disciple people, but also one of the reasons why he worked was so that he would not be a burden to the people that he was ministering to and that no one could accuse him of trying to just get something free from people. That's why he worked twice as hard as anybody else, uh, any, anybody that he ministered to. The Bible says that we must be responsible to pay for adequate daily needs. Food, clothes, those kinds of things. We also have to be responsible for bigger, bigger ticket items that are required for our families, right? A home, education for our children, things like uh, insurance and emergencies. I think these all fall under legitimate needs in uh, our family and in our personal lives that we are called to be responsible for. No one else will take care of that for us. Um, Not our parents. When we are old enough, it's not our parents. It's not a relative. It's not a friend. It's not anybody else. It's us who should be taking care of those needs. I think also, besides entrusting us with money to take care of our own needs, God has entrusted us with money to also take care of the local church. In the Old Testament, it presents the idea of a tithe. Tithe literally means 10%. So this is one uh, scripture uh, references Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 and 23. And really the spirit behind giving a tithe or giving 10% in the Old Testament was it was for God's people to acknowledge that actually everything belongs to God. It was setting aside their 10% to acknowledge that in fact everything that they was in their possession actually belonged to God. And that 10% was for the benefit of providing for the priests, providing for the poor, providing for those who were, were marginalized. That's what that money w- was supposed to be used for. Now, I'm actually personally uh, an advocate of 10% is not a requirement now in the New Testament era that it's required that we give 10% of our income. I think it's a practical baseline for us to work off of, but it's not a requirement. In fact, the Old Testament uh, gives a description of now what giving looks like in the church. When you look at Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, this was how the church operated, the first church uh, in Jerusalem operated. It said this, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. So the disciples who gave did so through the local church. They gave it to the church and entrusted the church's leaders to actually distribute it as they thought was appropriate. So that's, a little, that's actually an interesting thing to think about. This is not uh, prescriptive, okay? This is descriptive what, of what was happening in the first church. But it is worth thinking about that the people of the church were giving their resources to the church so that the church could use it according to their discretion. The church leaders could use it according to their discretion uh, where they saw the need and where they felt it was appropriate to run their church and to help other people who were in need. That's an interesting way to think about giving to the local church. I always tell people that. Once you give it to the local church, of course, 
that local church has an obligation. If you de- designate it to a specific, a specific cause or activity, it should be dedicated to that. However, if it's just given generally, then it's up to the church's discretion to use it appropriately. So there is a, there is a responsibility of the member to give it that way. And then there's a responsibility of the church leadership to use that use those resources well, okay? And that's, that's what you're trusting the church leadership uh, to do. <clears throat> Besides just uh, giving it to the local church and also to support our own needs, God has entrusted us with money to take care of other worthy causes as well. This includes giving to those in need. That includes giving to other ministries outside of the local church. That includes things like missions work, okay? These are just ideas of ways that we can be giving that are outside of taking care of our own needs as well as taking care of the local church. It's something that is on top of our regular needs and on top of our giving to the local church. This is why actually a lot of people have done this where they kind of calculated, even in the Old Testament, 10% was like the minimum. When you added up all the sacrifices that they were supposed to give, and everything that they were supposed to give, they actually was, it was actually a much higher percentage than, this, than just 10%. And so when we think about it for us, it's this idea of we give faithfully, in our, we, we provide for our family, we faithfully give to our local church, and then we also, as God gives us the resources, we are able to also serve others in the broader, in the broader you know, kingdom of God for causes that are eternal causes that have an eternal impact on us. So, principle number one, like I said, is where you invest is where your heart is. The way we handle our money indicates our view of God and His kingdom. Our, the way we handle our money, though our spending habits indicates our view of God and His kingdom. There are two principles that I hold on to very strongly when it comes to, or two ideas that I hold on very strongly when we think about money. First is ownership. God owns everything, including our money, including our possessions, including our time. In fact, He he owns us. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, He has redeemed us. We belong to Jesus. And so it's not just like, oh, our 10% is God's. Actually, everything is God's. And everything that we have in our life actually belongs to God. And we have to remember that. I think the other, other concept that I want us to, I think that actually we could talk at length about is this idea of stewardship. The idea of stewardship is that God gives us the responsibility. He entrusts us with His resources, because He owns everything. He entrusts us with His resources to handle faithfully. I'm going to talk a little bit more about stewardship in the second principle. But... What we have to understand is that we have to live ready for God's judgment of us. I think if we have an understanding that we're going to be held accountable to God, we're going to stand before God, and I think that it gives us, it should give us a proper fear of the Lord, that this world is not, this, our lives are not our own. The stuff that we own, the stuff that are, that are in our possession is not really ours, and that we're going to be held accountable for how we use the resources God gives us in our lives. He has entrusted us with those resources. Many times, if we don't live without a fear of the Lord, and and how we live reflects that we don't really believe that we're going to be in judgment one day. 
that God is going to hold us accountable. I will tell you this. Um, here's a practical thing that I would, I would encourage you to do, is to track your expenses as a way to gauge the condition of your heart. Track your expenses as a way to gauge the condition of your heart. Literally, I'm saying literally, track all your expenses from, you know, buying, <laughs> buying a 10,000, you know, 10,000 rupiah ice cream cone to uh, a car that you want to purchase. Track all your expenses and try it at least for a month. I think actually if you do it longer for a month, like six months or even a year where you're tracking your expenses, um, it will give you a very good idea what values you have in your life. You have to evaluate how you spend your money. You realize, oh my gosh, I spend this much on food. I spend this much on entertainment or on vacations or traveling. And I think we have to do, you know, this is something I tell our church all the time. And I think that I've, I've actually read it more like a business book, which is just confront the brutal truth, right? If that's what it is, that's what it is. I think we need data, right? There's no better data than your expense records, right? There's no way to say, yeah, I didn't spend that much. Well, look at how much you spent on that. You realize, man, yeah, there's no way around that. I spent that much. And uh, this, this indicates where my values are. And then you have to ask yourself, how can you invest in eternal stuff more? How can you, how can you invest in the things that, God, that matters to God more faithfully than what you are currently doing? I think uh, it may be painful, uh, not only because it's tedious, but it may be a little embarrassing. Um, but I would really encourage you to track your expenses. I'll, I'll throw in some like little practical things, but there's uh, something that we use in our church called Expensify.com. That actually, you just track your expenses as you go along. And there's, uh, it's pretty helpful in our family. We use that to track our expenses as well. And you could just make, it actually makes a report out for you if you categorize everything and, and everything like that. Um, I would say that just because you make more money, right now you probably are not making that much money in your life, early on in your career. But later on, if you do make more money, that does not necessarily mean that you should also upgrade your lifestyle. Okay, it doesn't mean that if you have more money, you can spend more money. In fact, I was talking about this with somebody else. Uh, when we had a guest speaker come, one of the things that he said is... Uh, he actually put a, a cap to how he spends his money. He makes $28 million a year, according to somebody that I just talked to. And he said that he actually put a limit in what he spends his money on for those things, and then he tries to give the rest away. And uh, this is not exaggeration, right? This is actually how he lives his life. I have another friend who uh, he recently just sold his startup that he, that he had founded. And... Um, he not only um, sold his startup for a decent amount of money, but he also had to buy a new car around the same time. And he was thinking about what kind of car he, could, he should buy, and he actually ended up buying a used Hyundai, Hyundai Sonata. And people were asking, why did you buy this car? I mean, you could have bought anything else, even just a brand new, you know, you know medium, medium level car or something, but why did you choose to buy a, you know, a used car, like a few years old? He said this, he said, basically... Um, I don't think I needed it, you know. I don't think I wanted to uh, spend my money on something like that when I could use it in a much better way. And I think that's a lot of, I give a lot of respect to, to him. 
in, in making that kind of decision. Because he's trying to live out that principle of just because you have more money, it doesn't mean that you upgrade your lifestyle as you go on. So that's the first part. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. We're going to look at principle number two. It says this. Uh, can you go to the next slide? The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. What Jesus is saying here is this. If your perspective, in other words, if your perspective is bad or if it's covetous, your heart will be full of darkness. I, I look at two perspectives that are kind of wicked and warped, okay? The first is a wicked perspective leads to prosperity theology regarding money, okay? The phrase bad eye is a metaphor for jealousy. It's a, it's a metaphor for being covetous. It's, you're coveting after what other people own or what other people have or what you see uh, in, the, in the mall or somewhere else. And what Jesus says is that Perspectives based on our sinful natures leads to an insatiable dissatisfaction. We can never actually satisfy those desires that are based on our sinful nature. Talk to any drug, drug addict. Talk to any sex addict or porn addict. They'll say that desire is insatiable. You can never, ever fully satisfy it. And it's the same thing with our material possessions or our accumulation of wealth. What Randy Alcorn, actually a lot of what I'm talking about is based on a book by Randy Alcorn called, I forgot the name of the book, God's Perspective on, I'll, I'll look it up and I'll give it to you later. But um, he said this, he actually said that prosperity theology, or the Christianized version of materialism, according to Randy Alcorn, is uh, prosperity theology. He defines prosperity theology as following God through giving and other forms of obedience become a formula for abundant provision and the celebration of prosperous living. I like that. It's a Christianized, Christianized packaging of the, of the age-old sin of just being selfish. And it looks nicer because we're wrapping it around Jesus, Jesus talk and verbiage, when really what it is is just plain old selfishness. This is really dangerous. It feeds the poison of wicked, selfish desires in our hearts. So that's one perspective. You go to the other extreme is the warped perspective that leads to poverty theology regarding money. So there's prosperity theology, and then there's poverty theology. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but Basically, it's the distortion that money is evil. And that leads to all kinds of extreme behavior as well. Um, Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears, they wrote a, a systematic theology book, and they actually have an entry on poverty theology. So I'm just going to read their definition of poverty theology. It says, Considering those who are poor to be more righteous than those who are rich, it honors those who choose to live in poverty as particularly devoted to God. And that's a bit misguided as well because it always leads to self-righteous judgment, secret envy, 
and also irresponsibility. The people that God has entrusted for us to take care of, they will often suffer unnecessarily because of a person's poverty theology as well. And uh, we've seen, I've seen that in different cases in history. Maybe you know some people who have chosen that kind of, that kind of way of living. And in some ways, it's very noble to live um, below our, what, we, what we think we might need and to live uncomfortably. But when you go to the extreme where children are not provided for, the basic needs are not provided, you're not responsible yourself at working hard and earning a living, then there is something wrong with that, especially when it leads to this self-righteous feeling. This feeling that God loves me more because I'm poor. Jesus actually goes on to say that if your perspective is sound, however, the heart, your heart, will be full of truth. Our principles and paradigms about money must conform to the Bible. So there's an IT term, right? G-I-G-O, giggle, right? Garbage in, garbage out. So if you have garbage data coming in, what's going to come out is garbage, okay? If your idea of, of money and wealth is incorrect, then how that will be expressed in your life will be incorrect. It's the same thing actually with biblical exegesis or inductive Bible study. I always tell people, your observations are the most important thing when you're studying the Bible. So often we make assumptions of what the Bible says, especially if it's something, that passage that we're familiar with. But what I always tell people is, look at that, look at that text of Scripture like you've never seen it before and answer the obvious questions and just pick it apart like, like Sherlock Holmes. And after you do that well, then you can make correct interpretations. If your observations are garbage, they're poorly done, they're sloppy, then your interpretations are going to be wrong. And that leads to heresies. That leads to a lot of problems. And it's the same thing in our perspective about money. Our perspective of money feeds information into our hearts that leads to our output of action and behavior. A healthy, or in this uh, original language, single eye, single-mindedness, is a perspective that that is composed of God's truth. Therefore, what I would argue is that the way that you handle money is also as much a process of sanctification than anything else in your life. So don't think just after this wonderful seminar on God and money, your life will be changed. I hope it does. But realistically, what I know is that it's a process of sanctification just as anything else is in your life as well. It has to start from our minds. It has to start with our information and what we know as biblical truth. And then we have to learn how to actually live that out in our lives. It says, actually, that we can faithfully take care of God's money, what I would say, is by being strategic. This is a concept that it's actually really been helpful for me to think about how I spend my money and how I take care of my money must be strategic, okay? God, if you look actually in the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, okay? Uh, it's a parable of talents, a uh, parable of the talents, where the talents are actually, it's like a money denomination. Um, the first two servants, it says that the first two servants knew their master's expectation. The master's expectation was that they actually do something with the talents that they're given. They've got to grow them. 
And so they knew they had to do something with it on their own, in their own initiative. They had to do something with it to be in order to be considered faithful with what they had been given. You see, it wasn't just enough just to sit on it and save it and leave it as is. They were actually expected to grow it. That's a great idea. That's a great way to think about stewardship. Upon being faithful, these two, the, these two first servants were actually invited, it says, to enter into the Master's joy. There's something joyful when you're joining in on God's work and when you're faithfully doing something with the resources that God has given you. Okay? Now, there's a concept that Ralph Winter, he's a, a really influential uh, 20th century, he just recently passed away, He's a groundbreaking missiologist. And he actually coined this phrase called a wartime lifestyle for Christians, okay? It's this idea that we live in a spiritual war and that our lives have to reflect that. He actually said that if you look back in World War, World war II in the United States, actually even the citizens of the United States during World War II, they adjusted their lives. They were sending, they said, women, don't wear, uh, what is it called, uh, don't wear leggings or something, right? Because we need to use that material to make parachutes for our soldiers. They said, we actually, uh, citizens of the United States, don't eat so much meat, okay? Because we have to send that meat to our soldiers that are fighting the Nazis on the other side of the world, okay? It's this lifestyle that centers around some kind of purpose. For Christians, what Ralph Winter was saying is, we need... Too often, Christians actually have a peacetime lifestyle mentality. Is they're thinking, everything's great, I'll just go leisurely about life, and everything's about my pleasure and my happiness, and that's it. Where actually there should be a wartime mentality where we're understanding that in our lives there is a war that's going on, a spiritual war that's going on. And our lifestyles and our decisions have to reflect that. Therefore, the difference in our stewardship is like this. There's a difference between simple stewardship and strategic stewardship. Simple stewardship or simple lifestyle is minimalism as an end to itself. Um, in other words, being cheap for being cheap's sake, okay? And in contrast, strategic stewardship is investing in whatever will advance God's kingdom. It's this idea that we're going to allocate our resources in an appropriate way that will maximize and advance God's kingdom. Strategic stewardship involves being generous at times and being sacrificial at times. Let me give you three examples, okay? Let's say there's a natural disaster. 2004 in Aceh, right? There's a natural disaster. It re natural disaster relief requires what? Generosity. Because this is, is impacting God's kingdom. There have been people who have lost loved ones, lost their homes. They need immediate medical care and those kinds of things. It's this idea that we need to be generous at those times and give to, to, to people who are in need in those kinds of natural disasters. That's being strategic with our financial resources. Another example is uh, when there is a chance to upgrade the latest technology and you decide not to because that money can be allocated in a better way. Giving to missions work. Giving to a ministry. 
giving to whatever else that we deem as a worthy eternal cause. That's being sacrificial because there is something better that our money can be spent on. Right? That's being sacrificial. So sometimes we have to be generous. Sometimes we have to be sacrificial. Let's say another thing is going on holiday is needed. Sometimes, this is personal for me, okay? Because I grew up, as a pastor, people, you know, especially, I'm actually technically a missionary, right? So I go back home to my friends in the U.S., and I tell them I'm a missionary. And at first, we're like, oh, I don't think we should show them our pictures from Bali, right? <laughs> because everybody thinks of Bali as that's like the spot where you go, it's, you know, you relax, and you, you go on the beach, and it's luxurious, and Mick Jagger got married there, and all this stuff. Do you actually know who Mick Jagger is? I don't, it doesn't matter. Uh, and so I said, oh, I don't know if we should like tell people like that, that's what we did. Like We took a vacation or a holiday to Bali. And then I, I was thinking about it, and as, as I was working on this, uh, the first time that I was actually putting this together, I realized this. I work really hard, <laughs> right? It's stressful. Did I, ever, I always tell people in our church, being a pastor is you deal with sometimes the best of people, but oftentimes you deal with the worst of people, okay? And it's, it's, it takes a toll. Uh, sometimes my family pays the price. My wife pays the price. My children pay the price. And as an investment in my family and as an investment in my own personal sanity and, and emotional health, I need to take a vacation. It's absolutely necessary. In fact, if I want to be in this for the long haul and not burn out, I have to take a holiday. And so I made a commitment with my family. I said, every year we're going to take a holiday. Every year we're going to do something where we get away and it's just me and you guys as my family and where I can rest. And I don't have any apologies for that. Why? Because it's spending money for something that is needed to continue in this fight, the spiritual battle that we're engaged in. Does that make sense? And so it's this idea that we sometimes we have to be generous Sometimes we have to be sacrificial. and Sometimes we have to think about the bigger picture. Okay, that's strategic stewardship. Sometimes we mistake it with simple living, right? You just got to live cheap. You just got to not spend a lot of money. What I tell people is, no, actually, we got to be strategic in how we spend our money. We have to be strategic in how we steward this resource that God has given us. So principle number two is your perspective about money feeds your heart. The key to strategic stewardship is budgeting. Okay? So tracking your expenses is actually just not even a half, the, half, the, half the battle. Okay? Tracking your expenses is like a quarter of the battle. Budgeting is actually most of the battle. Okay? Let me explain what I mean. Um, one person has said, Jamie Munson said this, living without a budget is like driving a car without its dashboard. It's basically functioning and going through life without any information, <laughs> without any plan of these vital things that you need, right? Just like in a car, if you're not, not keeping track of how much, how much uh, gasoline you have in your car, the oil levels on your car, the battery le- level on your car, someday your car's going to go kaput, and you're not going to know why. It's the same thing if, in our, if we do not budget and we do not understand our financial situation, is going through life without any information that's important in the way that we function in our lives. I believe that budgeting can be an act of worship just as much as anything else. 
Budgeting can be an act of worship that requires trust, requires accountability. In fact, I was you know, talking to some people just before this, talking about you know, um, budgeting for the church and how stressful that can be. You know? yeah, I've experienced that. I've experienced you know, we have to make a budget for our church. We don't know where this money is going to come from, but we, wanna, we believe that this is what God has called us to do. This is the direction that God call, has called us to take us in. We can't be overly luxurious on the things that we buy. Neither can we just like always be on the cheap because you know, we have... You know, we don't have anything for our children. We don't have a projector. We don't have anything. It's we have to, by faith and with accountability, budget because that's how our church is going to operate on a very practical level. In our families, in our businesses, that's the same idea. It can be an act of worship that requires trust, that exercises trust, exercises accountability. If done well, we can correctly or better allocate money for important things. We can be strategic with how we spend our money. In fact, if done well, we can live accordingly to how uh, our Lord Jesus expects us to live. You know, there, there's a saying, when you plan to uh, fail to plan, you actually plan to fail, right? You've heard that. And it's especially true when applied to our personal finances. By budgeting, people always say this, I would love to give, but I just can't, right? I would love to save up for this, but I just don't have any money. And it's oftentimes because we've actually failed to plan. And so we basically cannot or do not have the capacity to give when we want to. Um, By budgeting, you can actually plan to give. You know, there's a misunderstanding that sometimes giving has to be spontaneous, right? Like, pass that basket once or twice, and then, okay, now I feel this tug in my heart to give. Actually, that can be one way, I guess. But I think actually a better, wiser way of giving is when you plan it. You say, you know, this is what I want to give this year to the church. This is what I want to allocate to other things that I want to support, that I want to give to, that I want to help people out with, that I want to give towards missions. You know, we can also plan to save for important things, right? Save for important short-term expenses, whether it's purchasing a car, going on holiday. It also is important to plan for long-term expenses like your children's education in the long run. If you want to purchase a house, those are things that you do according to a plan. And you're saving for and you're budgeting for something that you believe is is your responsibility and is on God's heart for you to be working towards. We have to allow, like I said, we have to allow God to sanctify our perspective and our practice of using money. That's why I think making a personal budget is one of the best exercises that you can do. I'll tell you, I've been actually trying to do a budget since I got married because that's when I got my life in order. My wife forced me to. And uh, it's been 10 years almost since I've been doing this. I'm still pretty lousy at it, okay? But it's been a good journey for me and my family to learn how to make a budget. We're not actually that great at it. In fact, uh, I just had a conversation with my wife, and we're just talking actually how I felt like we we actually have to learn how to use our money more strategically and more thoughtfully than we are right now. And and that's something I would encourage you to start uh, right now. It can be one of the, the takeaways from this talk is 
come up with a budget. It's probably going to be really frustrating at first. Probably because you might not, if you've never kept a track of your expenses, you have no, it's like a shot in the dark as far as what you're going to allocate money to. But as you go on and you keep track of your expenses and you budget year by year, you're going to get better at it. And you can be more responsible uh, as a steward of your finances. Um, it's also a requirement of trust. I mean, sometimes me and my wife, we worked on our budget and we're like, I don't know how we're going to we're going to hit this. I don't know how we're going to get money for uh, this for our kids or, uh, you know, going back on furlough for, for, uh, for this year. And we have to just trust that God will provide. I actually remember the first year that we were in Indonesia. And uh, we actually had a, a support-raising target. And uh, we made a budget according to that. And um, at the end of the year, you know, me, I'm getting sanctified in this. So, you know, after a while, I just lost track of things, and I wasn't really keeping track. And then frantically at the end of the year, I'm trying to, like, finally do the books. And at the end, what I showed my wife was, it was almost to the, to the T. What we had raised was, was as how much we spent, which was our budget. It was like there was no way that we could have planned that on our own. And it was, a, it was like one of those faith-building things for my wife and I, where we said, yeah, you know, we can trust that God's going to provide for our family. We can trust that God's going to provide for us. Um, and I think it will help you to prepare for your future, for known challenges that you may face, as well as unknown challenges that you may face. Is learning how to budget now, learning how to live and give strategically. Lastly, let's take a look at verse 40, uh, 24. Um, no person can serve two masters. If you look at verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. The question then kind of comes down to this. is Who's your master? Is money your master? Or is Jesus Christ your master? <clears throat> in fact, in uh, the verses that go after, verses 25 through 30, if you look at the continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on to ask, Why do you worry so? Why do you worry so? You know, actually, most of us worry about money-related issues. We worry about our businesses. We worry about our jobs. We worry about our families. We worry about our mortgages. We worry about different loans that we have. We worry about our family business. We're worried about money and money-related issues. <clears throat> we often worry about such things as loss, or inability, loss of work or inability to work. Sometimes we worry about sicknesses and accidents. We worry about raising our children. Sometimes we worry if, you know, uh, if, we, if we don't keep working. I was talking to somebody, and he was talking about his, his business that he had just started a year ago. And what he said is he, looked, he was looking at me. We're eating, we're eating together. And uh, he, looked, he looked horrible. <laughs> I actually told him, you look horrible. <laughs> you look like you haven't slept in days. Like he said, you know what? I'm doing this business right now, and uh, I work until 11 or 12 at night because... Uh, I talk about it with my wife, and we don't want to miss this window of opportunity. We don't want to miss this wave of momentum that we have, because business is going well right now. And we don't want to lose it. And you think about it, that's operating in fear, right? It's fear that tomorrow, it may not be the same as right now. And that's why I have to do all that I can in my power to make sure that it happens now. I think many times we're in that situation, where, where worry dictates uh, what we do. When Jesus says, you know, if you worry about your finances, 
It actually shows a gap in your allegiance. It shows a gap in your loyalty. Okay, look at, listen to what Ed Welch, uh, he is uh, somebody from, uh, from the United States, he said this, Worry is, mis- is a misdirected love that should be confessed. It is trying to manage our world apart from God. I think that's just another way of what Jesus was saying is, why do you worry so much? He says in verse 24, you know, no one can serve two masters. You serve, you serve me, you don't have to worry. In fact, uh, today, a major issue in our society is debt. Debt is a really cruel master. And I would not be surprised if some of us are in credit card debt or if our, some of our families are in tremendous debt because of a bad business decision. <clears throat> simply, debt is simply spending more than we can afford, right? Um, this article is dated, but there is an article from the Straits Times uh, from February 2011. So I tried to look on the internet for more recent data from Indonesia, but this is all I could find. That there were 161.5 trillion rupiah worth of credit card transactions in Indonesia. I'm, I'm guessing it's like tripled from 2011 until now, okay? Um, tra- uh, credit card transitions, uh, transactions. 161.5 trillion rupiah, okay, worth of transactions. 70% were repaid in installments. You guys know what that means, right? That means on like interest that's like 30 or 40%, they're paying small installments on their credit card debt. So they're paying like another, an extra... 30 to 40% on top of what they pay for. So they thought they were getting a deal buying this thing on credit when they're actually paying, you know, one and a half times the price of what it, what it actually costs them, or what they think it costs them. And 9% of that, of those transactions, defaulted. That means credit card companies know they're not going to get it back. People cannot pay it. When you think about 161.5 trillion rupiah, 9% is a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And like I said, I would, be, I would be pretty confident to say that's two, three, four times the amount today than it was 2011 in, in, in Indonesia. In fact, when you think about the, the housing market crisis, 2007, 2008, right? Most of that. And when you get down to it, this is my own personal evaluation, is not a, not a financial expert. It's basically people who wanted a standard of living like this. They wanted a house like this when they have an income of this. And so they get, uh, they get loans from the bank, and the banks cannot pay back their loans or cover their loans. And so basically, they wanted a lifestyle up here. They have an income of down here. Basically, the whole you know, global economy exploded because of that. Debt is a master that ruins marriages, ruins families. Like I said, being in Indonesia and being with younger people, I realize that so many times, people's pro- the problems that people are going through in their families, a lot of it has to do with debt. A lot of the problems that they face, a lot of the marital problems that their parents had, a lot of problems that they faced with their, with their fathers, and their own, you know, own personal upbringings was because of debt. It is a cruel master. And debt strangles any chance of generous giving, any kind of strategic stewardship, it causes undue stress, it causes broken relationships. I think one piece of advice I would give you in your, in your early life of 
your personal finances is do not get into debt, period. I would say even before you buy a car, don't take out, don't take out a loan, just save up for it. I think there's some debt that's okay, that's good debt. I'd say actually no debt is good debt, right? So you can avoid it in any way. <clears throat> in fact, Jesus says that Jesus Christ is king who demands 100% of our devotion. Jesus actually makes it very binary, right? It's either zero or one. It's black or white. It's you're with me or not. I'm king or I'm not king. I think that makes, makes it very clear for us, right? If money is your master, you will always use Jesus and everything else in your life to serve money. And actually, I've had people in their honest, most vulnerable times, people who are young in their careers, people who have started their own businesses, who are founders of startups, they say, you know, to be honest, I'm just controlled by, once I get a taste of it, I'm always thinking about how I can make more money. If Jesus is your master, you will use money and everything else in your life to serve him. That's the heart of strategic stewardship as well. That's the heart of stewardship. Principle three, you cannot serve two masters. I would exhort you, make Jesus your master. We need to humble ourselves and we need to ask God. We need to ask him for help. We need to want to change and have Christ as Lord of our financial situations. Psalm 86, 11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I like that last part. It says, Unite my heart. Make my heart single-minded. Make it focused and devoted to one person, which is you. And as I do that, teach me. Teach me in every aspect of my life how to walk in your ways, including our finances. Teach me how to walk in, in, in those ways. Let's ask God to make us less divided and more single-minded, especially in our word. If you guys are, have ever been to my church, you know, this, you know this is what we talk about. In your word ministry, in your prayer ministry, I think there's no other way for you to change what's up here without getting in the word. There's no way to really evaluate except through prayer, like coming to God, even bringing your spreadsheet of your budget or something, and bring it and say, God, is this something that honors you or not? And letting the Holy Spirit convict you and the Word convict you about how you steward your finances. Believers in Jesus can hope for change in, through the gospel. Okay, We need to attack the root problem by what? Confessing our sin. We attack the root problem by addressing our hearts. Just tracking your expenses and making a budget will not solve the problem of your heart. And this is what I want to end with today. It's by confessing our sin before God, going to the cross, being forgiven, receiving that forgiveness and believing that we're forgiven, and then obedience, which requires taking some tough and courageous steps. Steps that include evaluating your spending habits, including establishing a debt elimination plan, including making a budget and following that budget and making a budget every year that every year that goes by. And through that, I believe that God will sanctify us so that the way that we spend our money and steward our resources will reflect our devotion to Jesus Christ. Let me, um, let me just pray and then maybe I'll, we'll, we'll fill some questions, right? Okay, let me just pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word guides us in all matters of life. And your word has a lot to say about finances and about money. God, I pray first and foremost that you would address our hearts and you would convict us that you are our master and that money is something that we want to use to worship you. And so help us to take some bold and courageous steps that may be difficult for us, that may cause uh, family members and peers to look at us funny, to question us. But help us to do that, to track our expenses, to evaluate what it reflects about our values, to budget, to to be strategic in how we spend and allocate our money, uh, to eliminate debt in our lives and to live according to what you have given us, and not any less and not any more. So God, we just uh, ask uh, for your help. Pray that there would be this sanctification in our lives as we submit uh, this area of our lives into your hands. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay? So I think, so I think we're just going to open up the floor, and, and if any, anyone have any questions, I'm just going to give this mic to Okay. Okay. So, guys, anybody have any questions? We have an overabundance of microphones. Oh. <laughs> and nobody asking. Okay. Um, so, the next section of the passage right after the one you were talking about, mm-hmm. Matthew 6, something, something, it says, like, don't worry, uh, don't be anxious. But... Actually, anxiety and worry makes you use your money better, makes you budget better. Mm-hmm. And so how do you balance not worrying and using the worry? For yeah. I mean, I think that um, money, I think worry is like a, it's like a warning light on your dashboard, right? I think it can be positive, like you said, where it's just like any other sensory signal on your body that is alerting you of something. And in which case, it can be an opportunity for us to exercise our faith and exercise our dependence and to just be aware of what's going on. Sometimes, I think, uh, for those of us who are happy-go-lucky, we don't worry at all. Sometimes I'm, I'm worried that it's more like we're not thinking at all about it. So definitely, I think that kind of worry has, has a place. Right? Uh, I think when you talk about the worry that that Jesus is talking about in, in uh, Matthew 6, I think uh, it's pretty clear from the context that it's not a positive or even neutral thing at that point. It's where worry becomes something where it's like an obsession or negative uh, consequence when it leads to maybe self-dependence. It leads to maybe other ways to cope with that worry that's unhealthy. So I think uh, when you look at it, let me just turn to it. You know, it says, don't be anxious, don't worry. Um, and then, you know, I think this is where it says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. So I think there's a very, there's a very blurry line between worry that's like a healthy stimulus or like an awareness of the situation that causes us to depend on God. And then the other side of that line, which is worry that leads us to take matters into our own hands, that causes us to, uh, to have those stresses or anxieties as bigger than God himself, that that turns into something that's unhealthy or sinful. So, 
I mean, when you look at the text, it's obvious it's not a positive thing, right? Okay, I have, I have a question as well, a practical one. You said there was good debt and bad debt. Okay. So what is a good debt and what is a bad debt? <laughs> okay. Because right? um, the way I think is like, if I don't take like a mortgage, right? Sure. I, I'll get a house by like 55 <laughs> in Jakarta, right? Sure. sure. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Um, when I was in uh, when I was in university, so that was like a, lo- a little bit a while ago. Okay. <laughs> they said good debt is like getting a student loan for your school schooling. Um, that was a long time ago, and I would say even now maybe that's not a good debt. But the idea of that good debt was it was money that would be used for something where it would be spent on something that's worth more than the actual debt you're going in into, right? And so I think like a mortgage, most people will say that a mortgage, uh, a, a loan for a house, um, I think that can be good or bad, right? It can be good if it's a mortgage that you can pay, right? If it's something that you can afford that's within your means. Um, I think the problem with a lot of people who have, especially in the housing crisis, was they were buying houses that, with a mortgage that they couldn't afford otherwise. And once they, they lost a lot of their collateral, they didn't have anything to pay it with. And I think that's the problem. So it's somebody who's, who, who can only afford a certain amount for their mortgage, but they're actually you know, getting a house that's much more expensive or costly. I think that would be considered bad debt. I think a mortgage can be a good investment because it's something that helps people pay for something that they wouldn't be able to afford otherwise. It would take, like you said, 30 or 40 years for them to save up enough or something like that. So in some ways, I think if, you, if used responsibly, a mortgage can be okay, can be good debt in that sense. Okay. By the way, I'm not a financial expert, so I'll okay. just do the best that I can. Don't make it too technical. Uh, so I have uh, two questions. First is, do you still agree that in, in, in today's uh, term, uh, tithing is still 10% mm-hmm. practically? So what? where should uh, a believer tithe? Is it to his or her local church? Like I heard some pastors say, if you eat at McDonald's, you're supposed to be at McDonald's. That, that's the principle that they say. So you, if you are a member of a church, of a local church A, you should pay your tithe at local church A. Sure. Which, it make, which makes sense. Uh, so I have questions with that. Where should we pay our tithe? And secondly, what do you say to people who say, okay, I pay my tithe, but this leaders at the church abuse the money, lost the trust of these members of the church. How should this person uh, deal with this mm-hmm. kind of issue? Okay. Um, I think with the idea of tithing itself, tithe is an Old Testament Exactly, it's an Old Testament specific, right? So it's, you give 10% of your flocks, your, your harvest, or whatever, that's what you give 10% of. Um, I think when it comes to the, to the New Testament, uh, tithing is not something that Jesus said is specifically required to give 10% of your income. And it's, you know, so it's not necessarily 10%. I would say, like, I, I think... That's probably a good baseline to, to work off of. And as you, this is where I think budgeting is important because you budget according to what, you're, what you can afford. Let's say that you don't make that much money. You don't have that much margin to live off of. Well, then 10% may be hard, right? And uh, 
being responsible for other things, then I would say that you can, that's, that's a baseline where you could say, well, I'm going to probably give less than 10%. That's between you and God, I think, because it's not a requirement. Uh, I think that maybe there's, a, there's a, a little bit of grayness there because I think living by faith and living sacrificially, that you, know, you can make a decision and say, well, I'm going to try to give a little bit more and by faith trust that I'm gonna, God's going to provide and I'm going to make some sacrifices in my life. Right? I'm not going to purchase this or I'm going to hold off on this or I'm going to try to find this for less or those kinds of things where you're actually spending, trying to save so that you can allocate your money a little bit more favorably like that. Um, like, for example, someone, uh, people always ask, well, if you're in, let's say you're in debt, should you keep tithing to the church or should you be paying off your debt? I'd say try to do both, but do it wisely. I mean, really, if you're in debt, then you should be paying off that debt as best as you can. Um, and I think it's understandable where in some seasons you're not going to be able to give as much. I'm totally understanding of that. Um, because that's just not the heart of Jesus' teaching about giving in that way. Uh, I do think that the, 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 the spirit of giving is we give generously. right? So even when you look at texts in the New Testament, like in Acts, that people gave really generously. I think it's above and beyond 10%, if you're going to calculate it. But I don't, I mean, it's, I think it's maybe in God's wisdom it wasn't calculated, right? Um, because it's just generously giving as a principle, not... 10% of your giving. You know, sometimes legalists want those clear, clear demarcations, right? Because then they want to know what minimal they can do sometimes to be okay with God, to feel okay with God. And so I think you lose some of that. Legalists, they would also say, that's where the righteousness comes out of, right? It's if I do follow all the rules to the T, that's what Pharisees did. 10% of their mint, 10% of their whatever spices. Okay, I'm, I can do whatever else I want with my life and live as unrighteously as I want, but at least as I'm keeping this rule, I'm okay with God. And miss the, miss the point entirely, right? Uh, when it comes to if, who you should tie to or give your offerings to, I would always say you should give to your local church. If you're benefiting, if you're a member of that local church, you should be giving to that church. Because that's how the church functions, you know? Um, I mean, basically, when you think about it, how does a, the pastor make a living? How does he feed his family? How does he have a place to live? It's because the members of that church are contributing to something where it benefits, it benefits the church as a whole. Hopefully, the pastor's working hard so that he's faithfully helping people to grow and shepherding them and teaching and preaching God's word. Um, I think that... Uh, and then trust, entrusting the details of that giving to the leadership of the church, whether they're elders, whether it's a pastor, deacons, or whomever takes care of the budget, entrusting that to the leadership of the church. Uh, I would say that if you have problems with how a church may be giving, I would say bring it up in a healthy way. You know, Bring it up with the people that uh, are actually the decision makers and the power holders in that church and try to do it in a respectful way that kind of follows the biblical, you know, steps of it. You know, you talk to the elder, you talk to the pastor, you know. And actually, as a member of a church, I've actually done that before. I said, I said, Pastor, do you think we really need this thing, you know, this this one thing that we purchased in our church? And uh, we talked about it, and we said, okay, yeah, I mean, after a while, we discussed it, and said, that yeah, I think that's okay then, you know. And I think there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a line, I feel like, because I think that sometimes we... Uh, 
have to challenge in a healthy way and hold people accountable. I think that's definitely okay. As long as we do it in a healthy and respectful way. I think sometimes there's just, there's something about submission I think that's important too, right? Where it's not like in the Bible, um, wives are told to, to respect and submit to their husbands because they're respectable, right? Actually, it says, wives, submit to your husbands, especially when they're dogs, right? Especially when they're not believers, you win them over by your humble respect to them, right? And your service to them. I think there's something really valuable to that. And it's this understanding. I think that a lot of people, younger people especially, we don't really understand. Like, you don't, res- you don't submit to somebody be- just because you respect them. You submit to them because God has put them in a place for you to submit to them. And so, bottom line, I think, is if you don't agree with them and then they don't listen to you, I think there's an obligation where you, you bring it up with them. But and if they don't, bottom line, is they're going to stand before God and be judged for it? And I think that's actually more scary than anything else. And I think I could be pretty—I can have a pretty good conscience about that, right? If it really bothers you, I think that if you really don't trust where that, how that church is allocating their resources, and you've gone through the proper channels and you have real problems with the leadership, uh, I would say it may be okay to change your church to a leadership that you respect and you follow. I mean, um, because it's going to be hard to be a part of a church where you just don't trust the leaders, right? And you. They really have big problems in how they're, they're, what they're spending on because spending reflects values, right? I always tell that to my leaders is when you look at our budget, it reflects what we value, okay? So I think if you don't agree with the values of the church, then I don't think, I don't know if you could be a part of that church with integrity, you know? So. I have a question. Um, so how, how do you tell, how do you know uh, the difference between when you're just into poverty gospel or you're actually just being faithful? <laughs> well, uh, are, are there like signals for you to realize, hey, I think I'm into poverty gospel or, you know, I think I'm just being faithful? <laughs> well, I think, I think that it's always going to be like, I don't like I think in anything in life it's hard to like do everything perfectly, right? And so I think a lot of times you may be moving in and out of even prosperity or poverty and being like, you know, I think I've gone through that. I look back in my life and sometimes I look back and say, man, I think uh my family or me, I struggled unnecessarily just because I thought I was being I thought I was being righteous in doing this when actually and actually one person that's really maybe gotten a bad rap for that is somebody like A.W. Tozer, <laughs> where, you know, he's a well-respected writer, theologian. You, you guys have probably read some of his books. But actually, he was sometimes pretty bad to his family, you know, like, they didn't get certain things that they needed as a family. And I would be like, I don't know if I would do that, you know. I don't know if that's even right. And so I think it's, like, constantly evaluating it, you know, and having good accountability with it, you know. It could go the other way, too. Like, do you really need to spend that on that? Is that really something you, that's healthy? And sometimes I've gone on the other extreme, too, said, you know, I don't know if we needed to really do that one thing or spend that kind of money. I think we could have maybe downgraded a little bit. It would have been fine, you know? I feel like that's always, you know, we make mistakes, and I think we have to learn from them more than anything else, right? So. Anybody else have any questions? 
in Malachi 3.10, it says like, um, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Like, that's the only place where God says, like, put me to the test. And what does it mean in that context? Mm -hmm. One sec, let me read it again, okay? Um, the problem in Malachi 3 that the prophet, the, the Lord is addressing um, with the people of Israel was basically um, they were giving them, they were giving God like basically second best, right? They were giving him like leftovers and the lame animals and things that they didn't want. And so I think what God was challenging them was actually what's the heart behind that, right? It's that's where he's bringing up this idea that you're really robbing me, right? And you're robbing yourself and you're robbing Israel of the blessing of being in a covenant relationship with me. And so I think what he's saying when he says, put me to the test, is when you give your best, you live by faith, and you fully trust the Lord in that covenant, within the context of that covenant relationship with me, then you'll experience the true blessings. When you only kind of come half-heartedly and you only give a little, you're always going to be second-guessing is God holding back on me, right? I think it's that kind of heart and that kind of idea of testing God and you know, seeing what it really is to live in the blessings of God. I think the, the heart behind this or the, 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 the way that it, it adapts to us and connects with us is the same way. It's if you really submit your finances to the Lord's, to, to Jesus' Lordship and you really do your best to steward your money strategically and generously and faithfully, you're going to, out of your covenant relationship with God, you're going to experience the blessings, right? You're going to experience the joy of, you know, basically, Matthew 25, the, the joy of entering in, or the joy of entering into the Master's joy, right? You, you experience that, right? But if you don't do that, you don't consciously, intentionally do that, you're always going to be worried. You're always going to be stressed. You're always going to be anxious. You're always going to, you're never going to be have enough, having enough. And I think that's, that's, the, that's the cycle that I think we live in if, we're not, if we don't really entrust that and submit our finances to the Lord. Make sense? <clears throat> Pastor Andrew, thank you for, <laughs> thank you for um, uh, your speech today. And... Um, I is it okay to pray to God and ask help me in my financial situation? Because to be honest, sometimes I think that it is not right to to ask God or pray for such requests because God doesn't care about our money. He doesn't care about our how rich we are or how poor we are. God only cares how devoted we are and how we worship him. Mm -hmm. So do you have any suggestions? I know I should not worry about money and, as you say, budgeting, planning, strategy, and everything. <coughs> but, of course, those worries come, comes haunting me mm -hmm. every day. Yeah. So is it okay to pray God for such yeah. requests? 
I'll give you a, I'll give you um, examples. Like when you look in the when you look in the Psalms, sometimes David David sings or prays some pretty mean things about people, right? He says, "Destroy my enemies," and you know stuff like that. And uh, sometimes he says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And as you work through the Psalm, I think what I appreciate about the Psalms is that David or the psalmist, whoever wrote the Psalm, uh, specific Psalm, they're being really honest before God, and then. As the psalm gets worked out, you see how um, they start out there with what's going on in their hearts, what's going on, what they're struggling with. And then they, that gets conformed to who God is and His care and His concern and His role in the universe. And then there's a response of faith. When you look at the psalms, that's a common pattern, right? And I think personally... Uh, one corrective I would make for you is, actually, God does care about our money, and God does care about the little details of our lives. I mean, that's who God is. He cares about everything about us. And so, if we trust and believe that, then I always tell people, this is what i actually been doing recently, is sometimes I'm like, I, I just, when I pray or when I have time with God, I actually start with where I am, you know? I don't try to fake it. I don't just say it's some lofty, you know, thee or thou. I actually... I just, God, I'm really tired right now, right? I really want to go to sleep right now. Or, God, I'm really annoyed by this one person, and I don't know how to get over it. And so then I start there, and then I meditate on Scripture, and then, you know, those prayers get changed, and I, I try to, what is this really telling me about my heart, you know? And that's how, I, that's how I've been growing in my relationship with God. Is I try not to fake it. I just, I feel like God can handle where we are, what we have to say to Him, and then... He changes us so that if we're really humble and submitted to Him, our heart will change about the situations that we're in. When it comes to money, I think we should. I mean, that's what Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread, right? It's because we have to express our dependence upon God and address those anxieties and worries that we have and bring them to the Lord honestly. Why do I feel this way? Why do I feel anxious? Why do I feel stressed out? Why am I worried about this situation in my family and then bring that to the Lord and exposes sin exposes you know where we can't control and it helps us to pray more meaningfully and honestly to God so that's what I would advise you (laughs) you can but God doesn't have to say yes. <laughs> I mean, David said, kill my enemies, right? So, oh, you can be pretty honest. <laughs> as long as you're willing to accept the answer that God gives you. Right, okay. Uh, Pastor Andrew, also, uh, a question related to that. There's this uh, myth between, like, Indonesian Christians that God always gives special favors to Christians. Like, if you're a Christian, there's a, spe- there's a special favor that is within you. Or something, right? So in whatever you do, you're always better than everybody else. That that allows you to like go to the next level. You know what I'm saying, uh-huh. right? It, it just it just like it, God allows you to win, and if you lose, there's something wrong, uh-huh. right? <laughs> um, so I, I want you to clarify on that, on like especially like business and like being um, wealthier or something. What do you think of that? that? Is there a special favor in our life that allows us to be richer or more successful than somebody else that's not a Christian? Um, that's also an American culture too, not just Indonesian culture, especially when it comes to sports. 
when you have two very strong Christians. You have Tim Tebow on both teams, right, in the Super Bowl. And both of them are asking, God, bring us victory. You love us in Christ. All things are possible in Christ, so bring, we're going to win. But you have two people on both teams that are saying that somebody's got to lose unless it's an exact tie, right? So uh, I, I feel like that's, uh, I think uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a fallacy to that. Uh, if it's translated as winning or favor in an earthly sort of way, and it's translated to financial success or business success or athletic success or things like that, I think the Bible d- does say that when we're in Christ, we do have God's favor. But God's favor is salvation. <laughs> God's favor is the hope of full restoration when our lives are done. And I think that's the truth. Because sometimes, yeah, God's favor is in our business does well. But God's favor is still, we can still say we're blessed when we're persecuted and somebody in our family gets killed because they believe in Jesus. How do you tell somebody in the persecuted church that they're blessed? If they're, they're definitely not winning, right? Or the poor in different places, or refugees. Is, I think there's, that's the essential fallacy in, in that thinking, is if it's taking just to, for success on earth, um, I don't think that's, that's correct. Right. That's why both teams cannot win. <laughs> um, anyone else? See, when you have anything to say. No, you're good? Okay. Okay. I think I think like just just a comment on the special favor. I think as Christian, even for me, I think as Christian we are given a special favor, but not in the material blessing that a lot of people expect. It might be that God gives somebody, you know, like you have this in your life, and then you work. There's a cert- certain purpose, but most of us in whatever that we do. There's a special favor that in everything we do, we have a chance to do it to glorify Christ. I think that's a much bigger favor than I think the non-Christian doesn't have. We have meaning in our work and just some common maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Great. I'm sorry. Is that a, was that a question? No. Okay. Okay, that's good. <laughs> All right. Okay. So I think I think that's the end of the session. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much, Pastor Andrew, yeah. for coming in and just sharing to us about God and money. So we 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 really appreciate that. Um, just just one announcement, and then we'll end. Um, the announcement is regarding the next session. So um, as as you guys probably know, we have the gathering once a month, and this is actually our last session for this year. Um, so it's going to be November nineteenth. Oh, we have two more. Okay. okay, okay. So we have two more apparently. Um, <laughs> but the next one is going to be on November 19th, right? Okay, October 22nd. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We have another one, October 22nd, then November 19th. Um, the next one is going to be on Church and Pentecostalism. And the next one is going to be on the Christian family. All right, okay. So if you guys are interested in that, please come and join us. Um, so as we end, I just want to invite Tazar, um, who is going to close us in prayer. Let's pray. 
Father, we touched on a, a very important topic today that uh, is very close to our hearts. And Lord, as we learn about money, uh, help us realize and help us to neither demonize money nor idolize it. Um, money is a, is a thing that um, is both needed and good and can be used for your kingdom purposes, but it can also so very easily control us as it promises false security, false identity, false comfort. And Lord, as we move on... Um, in our navigation with our treasures, with our riches, let us keep in mind the ultimate rich God who became poor for us and died in poverty, in, 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 in physical poverty on the cross without nothing left for him. But he gave it all. The richest being of the universe became poor so that spiritually poor people like us can be rich spiritually in him and have salvation evermore. And we thank you for that. And let that heart be the one that drives us as we um, navigate through all the details and complications of, of our finances, depending on each and every one of our situations. Um, so thank you, Lord, for this gift of grace, of mercy, of a relationship with you through your son. And now let us live accordingly to that um, with all our resources that you have given us that it may be used for your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.